You're listening to a Flawless Noises Media Network production. Welcome to Gay Side Stories, where the gay shit goes. I am your host, Curtis. I go about your life on all social media. Thank you so much for joining me for another week. There are so many podcasts out there that you can listen to and you choose to listen to this one. And I am eternally grateful Speaking of, if you want to support this podcast and its home network, a.k.a. Flawless Noises Media Network, you can do so in two ways. One, go to patreon.com slash flawless noises and sign up. In exchange for a little bit of money, you will be getting a lot of bonus content from myself and other hosts on Flawless Noises. You can also purchase some merchandise to help support this show. Go to FlawlessNoises.com store, pick up a shirt or a tote. And now we're going to get the show started. All right, guys, I have a return guest. One of my favorite guests, because that was one of my favorite episodes. If you go back, I don't remember the number. You know, I, memory and I are not good friends. But (laughs) if you go back and scroll through the Rolodex, you'll see an episode. I believe it was entitled Faithfully. And my guest was Verdell. And he's back. We're going to do... I don't want to say a part two because it's not exactly the same conversation, but it's along the same lines. That episode was well received. So I'm excited to have you back. So thank you for joining me. Well, I'm glad to be here. It's good to be back. I'm glad to and be my favorite guest. That's cool. Do I get like an award or something? Yes. <laughs> You'll return. <laughs> I want to get an Emmy for a guest star or something. Well, you can't get no Emmy before I do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's a there's a hierarchy to these things, all right? <laughs> but I'm excited about this, like I said before. So as usual, before we get into the good stuff, we're going to do the first segment, and that's the queer querying. All righty. I like this first question. So if you could choose, what kind of animal would you want to be reincarnated as? I would want to be reincarnated as an eagle. And there's a specific reason. One, because I'd be able to fly. Mm -hmm. So I'd be able to fly and I'd be a dinosaur at the same time because birds are dinosaurs. Mm. Those are my favorite animals. So Come on. (laughs) Standing for, for beasts long deceased. I'm not mad at that. I'm not mad at that. I don't really know because I too would want to be something that can fly, but I guess I don't want to be something that can be easily defeated and eaten. Mm-hmm. Mm, so I'm not sure. I mean, nobody eats eagles. Like the only thing that gets eagles are people because we get everything, unfortunately. Well, that's true. And I don't want to come back as a people. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah no, I no that, mm-mm. Um, but I don't know. I, I want to come back as something with the use. So, hmm, maybe I'll come back as a bee. They they have a declining population. Okay, and this it's a no. That's too much work. <laughs> oh, but you know, I, I can save this one for you. Okay. Honey, a, most bees are actually solitary. Honeybees are actually one of the only few that do that there are lots of different types of bees mm. and most of them are solitary so you don't have to come back it's the honeybees that are getting off 
Yeah, no, I don't. I can't be a honeybee. That's, you get to be a solitary bee instead. It's too much work, and the humans are just. It's not even the theft of the honey. It's the people that just fuck off on bees for no reason. Like, what do bees do? I mean, I do stuff to people. But usually bees don't bother nobody unless you bother them. So, honeybees, we're going to pray for y'all. Literally. Next question. What's one of your favorite cold weather comfort foods? Oh, goodness. See, my foods are in constant rotation, so I don't really have... I will eat the same thing and it won't matter. So like That's fine. Just a uh, everyday comfort food then. Oh God. every season. I'll never say no to a cheeseburger and french fries. Hallelujah. It it doesn't really matter. Um I could have just had one and if you bring me one, I'll say, Yeah, sure. Um it's 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 just yeah. I can have a cheeseburger probably almost every day and be fine. Hallelujah. I could almost say the same, but my body already hates me for the way that I eat. A cheeseburger a day will have me in a coffin stay. So, one of my, hmm, this is kind of a emotional, I guess, question, which I didn't realize it when I typed it up in my notes app. So, shout out to me, self-triggering like a mug. But <laughs> some of my favorite comfort food items are f- things that my mom used to make. Mm-hmm. And seeing as how we don't really have a much of a relationship, it's kind of, I don't want to say painful, but it kind of makes me sad that, not because I can't have the food, although I mean, I do love the food, but, <laughs> you know, it's just an unfortunate situation. But there were a couple of, I would say three things. The first one may not technically count, but we eat it during the holidays usually, although she did make it year round, but my mom's gumbo was always one of my favorite things. Like that was what I looked forward to on Thanksgiving. We had fried turkey, fried Cajun turkey and gumbo. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really do the traditional stuff unless we went to someone else's house. Right. The gumbo was enough for me. So that's one. Um, Another one is my mom's chili. Like, I know anybody can make chili, but there was something specific. I don't know what she did. You know, maybe I just got used to it, but I I don't really eat a lot of chili because it I haven't really had any that tastes like the way my mom used to make it. I like it too. Yep. So I'm just like, eh, I'm good on chili, kinda. So and the last one down here. Well yeah, over here rather. I'm the same. Right. Is very specific. There's a a recipe. I don't know where they got. I'm sure they ganked it from somewhere because it's it's very simple recipe. But there's like a, I think it qualifies as a casserole. And my mm-hmm. mom would cut up potatoes in like thick slices, and it would be like ground beef and cream of mushroom soup and cheese and some other shit she throws in there. She would bake it in this huge. My mom got really, really bougie. Like the older she gets, the more bougie she gets, which I think is tied to the more money that she and her husband make. She bought this huge, like clay, ceramic, pampered chef, like a Dutch oven type of situation. And she would make it in there. And because she used to make it in regular pots, but when she got that pampered chef, let me tell you, set it off. And it's kind of like a family recipe. I remember uh, my little brother had like a home ec 
course or something like that when he was in high school and they all had to bring in a recipe and that was the recipe that he brought in. Mm-hmm. Granted, it's fatty as hell, okay? Like cream of mushroom soup is nobody's friend, like for real, for real. But it was just something about that. Like when I came in there and, and the shit was sizzling, when I saw the potatoes getting sliced up, cream of mushroom soup, because we didn't use cream of mushroom soup for literally anything else but um whenever my mom would like do chicken fried chicken or something like that so that was the set off but i I think those would probably be my favorite comfort food items outside of you know like you said burgers i can do burgers and tacos like all the time i think i just had tacos last night i really need to get my life together because i'm sure my doctor's gonna be like so you just don't want to live do you so you you can do tacos i like if you're if you're trying to change up your diet you can do tacos in a way that's not awful that's why i like mexican and mexican adjacent food because you can they they have the versatility they have the range i agree i mean i could probably eat healthier tacos but you know what are you gonna do yeah i I mean get myself together of course but (laughs) okay so the last question what would the title of your biopic be or biopic oh see this is tough i would say the title would be Tending the Garden. That would be the title. Okay. I like that. You got to have a teal chapter in there somewhere. Probably the first chapter, maybe. Mm-hmm. Till that earth. Yeah, my name means green and growing. So that's that would be like a play off of that. Yeah, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Let me see. What would my biopic be called? Um, let's see. I need something off the wall, like American clown story, faking it till you make it or something. No, that's a bit much. Um, I don't know. I think mine would be called maybe concrete rose. Oh, okay. That's cool. I like the imagery that pops up. Yeah, like, you know, I'm hard on the outside. I'm soft in the middle, but not many people can see it because fuck y'all. Yeah, Concrete Rose. I think there's like a, didn't somebody have an album called Concrete Rose? Was it Ashanti? Um, the only thing, I mean, because I'm a 90s, you know, I grew up in the 90s. So, you know, was it a rose, rose through the concrete or something? I forgot. You're talking about seal, rose from a grave. <laughs> That is a kiss from a, a, a kiss a, from a rose. There you go, um, on the grave. Whatever I forget the words. It's from the gray. I think. See, I, uh, I don't know. Well, I like Jackson Solomon's version better than his, so it's fine. Mm, I don't know if I've heard that. Yeah, it's one of my favorite songs of ever in 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 life. This goes to she yes, I do love this song, but I love her covers too. Like when she yeah. covered uh, what's the Andre three thousand song? um prototype she did like a a live like one of those london sessions type things Mm -hmm. and she covered prototype that's one of my like that's in my itunes that get played that gets played regularly now i thought you were gonna say a rose is still a rose and i was gonna be like come on hate retha jigging in my seat a rose is still a rose listen lauren hill did that (laughs) she did that and the queen of soul r.i.p of course that's one of my favorite aretha franklin songs actually so i think that is going to wrap up the questions biopic coming soon 
And we're going to take a quick break and then we'll get into the main topic. Hey, this is Bree of Mama Meets World. Every two weeks, my show is live. It's a safe and special place for Black mothers and the people who love us. So for more about the Black motherhood experience, make sure you subscribe to my show. I'm sure you'll love it. All right, folks, we are back. It's time to get into the meat and potatoes and the cream of mushroom. So on this episode, we're going to be discussing navigating religious trauma. And if I'm not mistaken, you posted something on Facebook and I saw it, which, you know, with the algorithms, you never really know what you're going to see when you log into Facebook. But I happened to see this and I was like, huh. That would be a good show topic. And I did comment that because, you know, we both expressed mutual interest for you to return to the show, but I didn't know how to frame that. So this really kind of fell in my lap from your fingers. So again, shout out to you. I do love a guest that can inspire topics or bring their own topics. You know, it's a little bit of work off of my back. But anyway, let's start with the obvious question. Now, again, if you're unfamiliar with Verdell's background, actually, you know what? Why don't you give a quick synopsis of your background for those who may not be familiar? All righty. Well, once upon a time, I was a minister, a preacher. Uh, I got my Master's of Divinity from Howard University. I got another Master's in Theological Studies from Wesley Theological Seminary. Um, I won preaching awards. Um, I did a lot of work in religious organizing, particularly around um, LGBTQ inclusion and all the other intersecting issues. I was kind of known for just being on that progressive religious edge for a while. And then all of a sudden, well, maybe not quite so suddenly, there was a shift. Um, And I acknowledged the fact that I personally um, stopped believing. Um, I personally stopped believing in in God or any type of supernatural anything. And so a lot of what my work has transitioned to is still being involved in religious conversations, um, particularly if people who are um, dealing with various levels of what's called deconversion, which we can talk about, or just changing and shifting of religious beliefs. Um, But also for me personally, um, what I'm working on more and more is making more materials and discussions around black people and non-belief because it's there, but so many of the things and discussions that happen, there's just not a lot of black people there. And Mm -hmm. it's perceived that black people believe something. um, And so we just generally are not a part of those. And so I'm working to help to change that tide. So that brings me to now. I still like to talk about Bible stuff. I think it's really cool. It's what my degrees are in. And I think it's religion can tell you a lot about people. So I'm not Mm -hmm. one of those non-believers who's like, oh my God, you believe in God, you're stupid, it's all dumb, throw it in the garbage. Um, But I think that you can learn a lot about what's important to people if you see what they believe. And I think that's really, really vital. So that's what brings me here. And here we are. So back to the, like I said, obvious question. With all of that being said, you guys understand a little bit better. What do you consider religious trauma? So religious trauma is something that's been discussed 
um, off to the side, and I think it's beginning to get more notoriety. Still not a lot, but it's something that you'll hear a little more often than you used to. Um, still not the same way, but I would say in black spaces, because it's still a different situation for us. But you, the, the, the idea of trauma being inflicted as a result of religious spaces and communities is something that's beginning to gain steam. Um, there's an actual word for it, religious trauma syndrome. However, if you were to crack open the DSM, and for people who don't know, the DSM is it's a book of psyche, psych, uh, psychiatric psychology diagnosis and things that you, you know, criteria to diagnose people for certain things, things like that. And so it's not in there. If, it's, if it'll be in there at all, it would be under PTSD. And that's how it's usually handled. It's not something that you can find. Uh, but there have been some scholars who have done a lot of work around it and some other things that have been done around it. Um, for me, um, and I'm, I'm sure there, if people's definitions would probably defer, but I would just be simply that, you know, religious trauma is trauma that is inflicted as a result of participation or being connected to religious communities. And so that means if you're, to say, particularly that's germane to this podcast, if you're, you know, you're a queer person and you hear somebody saying, you know, the gays are going to hell, stuff like that, or, you know, it, it's the big stuff that you could think about, but also the little stuff, like the reason why you may not, if let's say if you're somebody who, if you're a boy, you know, or you identify as, as a boy and you like flowers, but you feel like you have to hide it. And so when you get older, you don't like bright colors because you were told that they were wrong or just all the little and then often mild things that go, well, I don't want to call them mild, but it's the big things and the things that often go overlooked that are traumatic as a result of being a part of this community. And for many black people, that's definitely being a part of a Christian church, but it's not just church. There are plenty of people who are a part of a mosque, a part of a synagogue who are black and experience many of the same things. So. Okay. In your opinion, I guess, what's the, how do I word this? So how much of the religious trauma that you are spot uh, highlighting is self-inflicted, I guess, versus someone else putting that on you? And the reason why I ask that is because I can speak from personal experience of having people, namely parents and, you know, people who kind of side with your parents when there's conflict that want to throw Bible verses at you about what you're supposed to do and who you're supposed to respect and what you're supposed to let people tell you. How much of that are you putting in the forefront of the trauma versus actual trying to reconcile how you feel about the religion and just everyday traumas, I guess, would be the best way to put it? Uh, that's a good, very, very good question. I think it's all of that and then some. Because it's cyclical and these things don't happen in a vacuum, right? And so right. let's say you hear something from the pastor one day. Let's say take it totally out of the realm of queerness. And let's say it's just, you know, the pastor says, you know, if you don't tithe, you know, God is mad at you. And so since you're 14, working at, working at the five and dime, you just keep giving your little 10%. And then as you get older, you keep doing it, even though you don't have the money to give 10%, right? 
And so at what point do you say, like, it's, it's, it's challenging to draw that line because whose fault is it? Is it, you know, is it your formation that led you that way? Or is it now your fault that you're an adult? Yeah, you had, yeah, you could say that you, you know, have the freedom to make a different decision. But I think that both of those extremes that we go to, it's like, oh, that you can do whatever you want free free of influence from anyone and that you are totally unresponsible well unresponsible is not the word you are totally um not responsible at all for any of your actions yeah so i think both of those extremes aren't accurate but like we all live somewhere in the middle of that don't we you know like the things that you might have heard from guardians and loved ones you might find yourself repeating and so yeah you're an adult but where did it come from you know, like we all, none of us can really escape our formation. We can only respond to it if we have mm. the right tools. At least that, that's how I view it. And, and that's how I've experienced it. So it's, it's, it's not that cut and dry. I have to agree. And the, really the main reason why I asked that is because I was using myself as an example. So you touched on it a little bit. Are there any other effects on the black community that you think come from the religious trauma that you're speaking of, whether we call it trauma or not? Oh, so much. Um, but I think it's, and this is my, for lack of a better word, spin on it. Cause mm-hmm. I, and I say it's because of the way that I see people commonly refer to it. The challenge of being a, I mean, people would technically call me an atheist, even though I don't use that word. I don't mind it, but I don't use it for myself because people just imagine a white person when they hear the word atheist. Um, <laughs> and um, so it's, it's the, the trauma that has happened to Black people culturally, historically, has to be taken into account, right? And so it's things that if you don't have an actual theological education and by actual i mean like where you have to go to school and read real books and write real papers Mm. not just some little thing that oh look my pastor we got some little books and pamphlets and we we read no not that (laughs) um (laughs) so we're not your little daily bread pamphlet that you hand out at the gas station is Uh, not enough like books where you know accredited degrees not like graduate level study and thought and you know stuff like that and it's it's not well sometimes it is shade because people be acting like they have a degree in that and it's like no that's not it but if you don't know the system you can't tell right um but what i would say is you have to start from the fact that black people have been traumatized and that we've trauma's been inflicted on us mm-hmm. um some of the misconceptions is that white people forced us to be christians and that is actually a misconception Mm-hmm. Um, which may sound weird to a lot of people. I know a, a couple of years back, I tweeted on Twitter and people were like, oh, no, 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 that's wrong. And it's like, no, it did, It took a while for Christianity to stick with, with the people who were enslaved here in America. It took quite some time. Um, they resisted it. They didn't want it. I mean, think about it. If you were kidnapped by somebody, would you automatically take their stuff, particularly if you still had your own? Mm-hmm. Why would you? Um, and it, Christianity the type of Christianity that we imagine today did not really begin to form until the late 18th, 19th century. And that seems like forever ago, but we're talking about the hymn singing, the emotions, all of that. That is relatively recent, actually very recent in terms of Christian history. We're talking about 
the last 150, 200 years, right? And so that type of Christianity didn't fit with the undertones of many African beliefs, particularly of the folks who were brought over here, because all those folks from all over had different types of beliefs and faiths and ideas, but there were things that they had in common. And so a, a faith that was quiet, no emotion, no moving, that involved reading a book, that was very foreign to the, the, the Africans that were enslaved. And so they didn't take to it, nor did they want it. And it wasn't until Christianity, one, began to change, two, um, a number of generations of slaves had passed to the point where some of the older traditions began to erode. I don't know if erode is strictly the right word, but they began to have some distance from the folks who first got here. Um, and so there was that. But then also it became kind of egalitarian. And so it was like everybody was kind of, quote unquote, treated equal. Again, it wasn't, it would be nothing that would satisfy us today. Absolutely nothing. But for the time to see white men and white women and enslaved folks all worshiping God together and calling it a move of the Holy Spirit was like, what? Wow, amazing. And even then, the slaves took Christianity and remixed it to their own beat. And so they took stuff out. They ignored things. They picked certain um, stories like, you know, Exodus, um, you know, Jesus and, and the sorrow songs. They intentionally picked and chose. So they did theology on their own and created and crafted a form of Christianity and kind of engrafted it in to their own beliefs already and then went on from there. And I think that's something that many people on the internet, particularly even people who are atheists and black, who, because they don't have that education, they don't get that. And so it's like, oh, this is the white man, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's not. And I think to say that ignores the agency that the slaves were employing during the time because they intentionally picked and chose what they wanted to. And white people didn't want to make their slaves Christian. Think about it. Do you want to take, well, some white people do, but I don't want to take my dog to church. <laughs> I don't do that. Damn. Um, so, you know, man, and so like, think about it. Why would I want to take my stool, my plant, because it's property, right? And they viewed us as property. And they also viewed that if you are a Christian, you're in equal standing. And you're, and he, they, they, their understanding of Christianity is that baptism humanized you and puts you in equal standing. And so they even changed their own theology. And so you could argue that the theology of the pie in the sky, and you'll get it all in heaven, really began to come into play as a result of white people trying to explain away slavery. <laughs> um, you can really make a good argument for that. So again, they went out of their way to not Christianize them. And then when it started to happen, they had constraints on what they could and couldn't do, which slaves also ignored in a hush harbor. So I don't want to talk too much more about that, but I think it's important to say that trauma was inflicted on us, but it's not as if white people in mass were trying to make us Christians and we just all sub and then our answers all just said, okay, fine, we love Jesus. That did not happen that way. Um, you can make arguments for as we get closer to the present day, that we've picked up a white religion and put blackface on it? That I would argue very strongly, well, but I would not put that on the enslaved. But in terms of the religious trauma, I think you have to also take into the context of the situation. Think about it, if you're living in a world where everybody hates you, and I think they aim for us being black today, even in a time when you know, we're getting you know, killed by the police and things like that, 
we just don't have a concept of how radically dangerous it was to be alive in these times. Like, and even particularly in like, you know, the, the uh, 1920s, we don't have any idea. And so it, it's so traumatic just to be alive. Like, like we're traumatic if we see a video, like we're traumatized, right? Imagine if you lived in that times 10 at least every day. Mm-hmm. You have no hope. You, there's nothing else around you. And so your only hope is this one institution that you have where you pretty much can control your own affairs within reason, right? And so, so much is there. And in those ways, holiness, as faulty as it is, holiness becomes a strategy. If I'm holy and upright, maybe the whites will leave me alone. If I hold myself together and I don't drink and I don't go around, you know, hoeing or whatever, then, then maybe they'll look at me differently. And I think that for fo- those of us today who have commentary on respectability, need to recognize that respectability was a way to live and get home. It was a way to survive. Like we know that ultimately it does not work, but if that's the only thing you have, I can't go to city hall. There's so many things that I can't do. You know, if I got to pick between opening my legs and, and, and going home and being holy, maybe I'll be holy so I can live. Right. People are trying to survive, but that's still traumatic. Right. Yeah. It's very traumatic to have to hold your body that way. And so it's a lot of those things are the result of black people trying to survive and make sense of a world that utterly despises them and their bodies and how they show up. And a lot of that trauma is passed on down. Now, it's nuanced, of course. Now, I'll take a stop and take a breath because I can say so much more. But. I think it's important to put that into context. It's so easy to look there. I'm, I'm known for dragon folks, particularly mm-hmm. preachers who have degrees similar to mine who know better. Um, but I think if having a historical take on it, it's really challenging to say, Oh, well, all that respectability and stuff with it. Well, if you had a choice between being holy and being dead, which would you pick? Because the, the, that was the choice that these people had to contend with in a way that frankly, we didn't. Um, and so I just think that that's something to really hold to that it's there are things that we can do today to change the tide. And I have some critiques about that. But historically, this is a this is us trying to survive It's us trying to make sense in the world that no matter what we do will hate us. So, yeah, that all makes sense. And I mean, I know the conversations are being had, but you know, I'm just not privy i guess to them but i think that we do need to have more conversations about kind of the inherited trauma Mm -hmm. and how that kind of manifests because i agree you know the even just looking at like depictions of those times and seeing how traumatic it will hail roots (laughs) and things of that nature like we can see what our ancestors went through and the trauma that they that they had to endure and it's kind of almost imprinted in our DNA in a way. And even just trying to educate yourself on that stuff is bad enough. You know what I mean? Because you have usually most people, most black people have that empathy. You have that empathy for your ancestors. And if you have common sense, you'll be like, wow, we do not have it that bad yet we still have some of that trauma from generations past plus whatever newfangled technological smart trauma that we have now. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it's a lot to juggle. I, I definitely agree. So I want to shift gears just a bit because you, I believe, identify as an openly gay man. I identify as a starfish. So let's talk about how these things, this religious trauma specifically affects the LGBT community. Sure. What are your thoughts on that? Um, it does. <laughs> Obviously. Um, I, I, I am a living witness. <laughs> I mean, me too. I think all of us have uh, some of that. But I want to, I use an example. Let's talk about Andrew Caldwell for a second. Oh, goodness. Um, so every, everybody loves to laugh and to tease and all of that. I'm concerned. I, like, I feel like there's a lot going on. And, but let me keep my thoughts to myself because it might get well, a little bit dark. Well, <laughs> I think that we have to look at him as a victim of religious trauma. And I think that's something that a lot of people miss. In that's the, very fair now that you um, mention it. You know, because, I mean, and how many, like, what happened to so many other people happened to him on the internet and is now crystallized for everybody to see as long as there's internet, right? He got called, I'm not gay no more, I've been delivered. And that's traumatic. Now that, now I've had, a, I had a similar situation, but mine happened on the porch being quiet, you know, around two or three people, not millions of folks. And so he, that, that's trauma. That is, that is a traumatic event. Um, I forgot, someone did, did some scholarly work around those type of deliverances or whatever, but he's a victim of trauma. And that is traumatic when, you know, and it was put up there and he, for the world to see and how he had to handle it. But just the very ideas that we have about sexuality, I, I think that and it's important for me to branch it out beyond, well, I mean, no, let, let's keep it specific. Just the, the, the black church and I, the black church institutions in general have a, a view of sexuality that tends to be damaging. It just does. Um, either it's not spoken about at all, or it's judged in a way. And you know, you're a whole, you're unholy. It's it's just it's 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 a damaging thing. But for particularly for the uh, LGBT folks, uh, we're usually the scapegoats. Um, it's like a it's a rhetorical trick that when something is going on in the world, it's because they let the gays do too much. Um, and so it's an easy it's an easy place to go. And I'm talking as somebody who used to be a preacher, right? And who knows preachers. And so I, I see the, the bullshit that they do. And I, and I know the tricks that they use when they, when they didn't actually do their homework, which is usually. Um, <laughs> when they run out of stuff to say, and they need to drum people up, we got to blame somebody. Um, and usually we're blamed for that. Um, but again, um, a, lot of, a lot of what black church theology is, is... Um, it's a lot of what's called evangelical theology, which clearly has negative things to say about n not just um, the queer community, but, you know, the female body. Um, the closer you, you know, uh, are to God, that God is viewed as being a man, and the closer you are in your physiology to that, the closer, you know, the more, the closer to authority you are. And that there are natural ways that things are supposed to go, that our bodies are basically like Legos. And so this spot is supposed to go here. And if you don't do that, then it doesn't work. Um, and so there's just that trauma around that. And so you'd be, I'd say you'd be hard pressed to find a black queer person, at least in America, probably around the world, who at some point in time did not experience some form of religious trauma because of how deeply ingrained it is. Ooh. 
You know, I've always found it very curious how much power the black church gives the LGBT community. Like we have the power to shift the world and, and make it this flaming landscape. And it's like, do y'all really believe we have that kind of power or what? Like, well, but like you said, I believe it's just the, the whole scapegoat thing. It's like, we don't, you know, I don't think they really see us as that way. It's just, we know we have fucked up the world. We Society is a hot flaming mess. And it's because of most of us. But, you know, uh, the inability to accept accountability seems to be a very common trait i guess or fault maybe is a better word in within the human experience so i get that it's just kind of like you know we don't want to take responsibility for the things that go on in our family that we try to sweep under the rug because of you know religion god is gonna fix everything we just need to pray we just need to pray and then when things don't change through all of the prayer well someone has to be blamed well i mean think about it um saying that Acknowledging accountability means that you have to admit that you were wrong. Exactly. And, and black and, and usually typically in our communities, people who are seen as authorities can't be wrong. They can't apologize. Um, they don't even have the language for apology. They don't even know how to apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would say is it is a critical lack of understanding about how just about just humanity. You know, it's a lack of understanding about how to what it means to be human um, and to demonize those types of things. I think it's a hard conversation because when you have it honestly, and I've tried to have those conversations honestly, and I've seen how people respond. It's very difficult because, you know, you ha- like to this day, if someone were to come up to me and say, listen, you preached a sermon that when I look back on it hurt me. I'd have to apologize. I'd have mm-hmm. to, even though, even given where I am now, a lot of preachers won't do that. They just right. won't. Um, and it's a, a sense of not wanting to highlight that. But also a lot of pastors are also like, again, back to religious trauma, it impacts everyone. The, the person who traumatized you has also been traumatized. And I think even one example in my own life is I was a part of a Christian frat for, for many, many years. And looking back on it, it was like, well, look, a lot of this shit was really bad. And it was, you know, it wasn't acute trauma. As in, boom, something happened, like, you know, being assaulted or something right then and there. But the things that I was told to do, the ways my emotions were manipulated, the ways that I was drafted to do things and, and, and urged to do things, given my relative given the relative power imbalance in my age, right, as a young, very young adult, you know, this was very traumatic. And I had to unlearn a whole lot of things. And if I were to go and talk to these people right now, they'd be like, well, what do you mean? But they also experienced the same things. The same things happened to them. And so a lot of these are cyclical. People repeat the things that happened to them. And so cycles are repeated over and over and over again because no one's willing to throw a wrench in the wheel and say, stop, this, is, this isn't how we should do it. Yeah. And so it's the people who, and it doesn't excuse anything, but that, that preacher who's out there saying, you know, the gay shit, whatever, look for about five minutes, you'll find something, you know, if you, it's really hard to escape 
And this is hard for people, particularly folks that I know who still really love and go to bat for church. You'd be hard pressed to find a Christian, particularly a black Christian or a black Christian community and not find deep trauma that's as caused as a result of that very community. Mm-hmm. You'd be hard pressed. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that a lot of acceptance when it comes to specifically the black church, regardless of denomination, there's a lot of overlooking, you know, kind of sweeping things under the rug. And there's a lot of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I don't know a lot about religion. All I know is what I grew up with. But my interpretations of the things that I heard, a little bit of the Bible that I've read, is that it really shouldn't be the case. Like there are sacrifices that you need to make in order to, I don't know, be green in the eyes of of God or however you want to look at that. But the things that I see people sacrificing in the black church to me don't really fall in line with that. You know, you're sacrificing the well-being of your families, of your children, hell, your, yourself, you know, your finances. And I'm just like, did we read two different Bibles? Because the Bible I read didn't say you had to do all that. As a matter of fact, the Bible is supposed to be helping you get those things together. Yeah, know? that's the thing. And again, I'm coming from somebody who very theologically trained and not a believer. The Bible does say all of that. And then so. Mm-hmm. Um, usually people say the Bible says the things that they like. <laughs> say that again. Say that one more time. It, it, the, the People usually say that the Bible says the things that they like. and But that goes for everyone. Yes. Um, even progressive folks, it's lots of stuff in there. Like the Bible is a, this is a very detached from faith <laughs> definition, but the oh, Bible is absolutely. a of documents written by people over spanning hundreds, if not thousands of years. That was not written with the intention to be put together. That was all tied together about eh, fourth century BCE or the common era rather, um, uh, some people say that as AD. So all cobbled together with no input from the original authors. None of these things were written to us. They were, they, they were basically, imagine digging, through, imagine digging through 20 people's emails over the span of 20 years, printing them out, and these people from different walks of life, different countries, different statuses of wealth, but they're all men. <laughs> um, some of them you like, some of them you don't. You throw out the ones you don't like, keep the ones you do, typos and all. And then you tie them all together and you say, here, this is a book. We're going to follow this. That's what the Bible is. And I don't say that in a way to cheapen, because I think it is still, in terms of like humanity, incredibly important. But this idea that the Bible, like one of the first things a seminary teacher told me is that, the Bible does not say anything. People read it and then they interpret what it says. So the Bible does not say anything. And so there the same go. Bible that says love your neighbor also says kill your neighbor. You have to figure out how to get from one to the other. And there's some people who don't want to. Um, we, we, are, we run our faiths by our interpretations, not by the letter of the text. Every, even Jesus picked and chose what he wanted to do and not do. And he informed his followers to do the same if you take the Gospels of what they're saying. Paul did it. The people in the Hebrew scriptures did it. 
um, there is no, well, the Bible says like the, the one through line that you will generally find is that you should be fair to people. You should be fair to people. You should be kind to strangers and that cheating is and, and, and defrauding people who can't defend themselves is something that you deserve divine punishment for. Those are like some of the main through lines that you'll find, but literally even those get challenged depending on the situation. Um, but that's the general thing, but there is no, I mean, even Jesus, people say Jesus is nonviolent, but Jesus also said, if you mess with one of these, it's better that you have a stone tied around your neck and be thrown to the bottom of a lake. Or I don't come, I don't come bringing peace, but a sword or, Hey, how nonviolent can God's going to come and kick the Romans out? How is God going to do, is God going to like hit the reset button? How is God going to nonviolently remove Roman forces? Come on, um, cosmic teleportation. Yeah. It's like, it's this, it's the Bible does not. And, and this get, I get on progressive folks nerves with this too. It's like the Bible, you can't, it's not, you, you can't, push it all to mean one thing. Like it was somebody writing a novel from beginning to end because you're going to make it, you're going to force yourself on the text in ways that are inauthentic and not really fair to what the people were trying to say. Yeah. doesn't mean you can't believe what you believe, but um, yeah, progressives do that. Conservatives do that. Everybody does it. Yeah. Jesus did it too, so that's fine. I've always heard, and I don't know how true it is because I never really sat down and thought about it at length, but I've always heard that the Bible is more so like a guide, like there are the stories in there. You're supposed to learn the lessons from the stories and not take it at face value. Like it's not a literal type of thing. But Until I've seen people, in church. yeah, and I was just about to say, I've seen people that are willing to go to the most <laughs> extreme parts of the human psyche to say yay or nay on that. And I'm just like, Woo. well, this is where I bow out, you know, enjoy, enjoy your little wafers and your blood and all of that kind of stuff. Because there's a lot going on here, you know, and it's hard to get to the root with so many other things going on. But I'm curious about one thing, and I don't know, it just kind of came to me, but with all of the things that we've been discussing about religious trauma and things of that nature, or maybe just trauma in general for our community, do you think that that has any bearing beyond the obvious, you know, skin color and hair texture? Do you think that these things have, are they, they, kind of inform how other communities treat us like not just white people but i mean like other not other but you know other other i keep saying other brown people you know um the latinx community um south asian communities things of that nature or is it just a strictly we see what we see we've learned what we've learned most likely from white people and this is just kind of how it is. And they don't really take those things into effect or into account, I should say. Um, I, don't, I think it can. I, and just to make sure I have your question right. So basically, relig does religion impact how other groups of people view Black LGBTQ folks? I would say religion in general, but more specifically, our religion. Um. 
I would say. Because the black church is different from, you know, the white church, even if it's yeah. the same. Uh, you know, I, w- I would say yes. I mean, it, it's it's all nuance, ingredients of gray and things in there. Um, I would say that religion, because black church institutions, and there's a reason why I'm saying black church institutions, because when you say black church, it assumes that literally it's all the same. And while there are definitely numerous, very strong threads that go throughout, an AME church and a Baptist church and a Black Episcopal church and a Black Kojic church all have different realities. And, and to say that it's all just Black church kind of flattens it. Mm-hmm. And it also ignores that even though it's not a lot, there are Black congregations that are doing their best to, to affirm LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. And so those places do actually exist. Um, they're not as, they're, there's not a lot. There's, there needs to be way more than, than, than what's there. And I even would quibble with some of their theology too. Listen. But it's, it's, it's there. And I think when you say black church institutions, it gives the space to be specific, but still not indict. It leaves room to make a general statement, but not indict everyone, if that makes sense. Right. Um, I'm more so thinking not the black church mm-hmm. as a monolith. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking more so the black community's overall relationship with religion, with mm-hmm. Christianity. Well, I would say, I would extend it even further, just religion and belief in general. Um, yeah. You, and again, I say this all the time, it's like, yes, the, the Christian, the black Christian church institutions are huge and, and they cast a large shadow. But just because something casts a shadow doesn't mean there's nothing in the shadow. We still have mosques. I mean, every summer, I, I live in the D.C. area, so when you walking up the street, it's the Hebrew Israelites ch- chanting scriptures, right, about how I'm going to hell and I'm burning because I'm queer. And so it's not, yes, it's a Christian, it's definitely a Christian thing, but it's not as if other religious and spiritual institutions, you know, think about the people who are like, you know, uh-uh, because, you, you know, you got to have feminine energy and masculine energy, and you can't match masculine energy and feminine energy, and then a rubber crystal and light an incense, and then they move on. That's not any different than the pastor saying what he does over the pulpit. It just happens to sound more woke because he's not talking about Christianity. And I think a lot of that stuff gets passed by um, a lot. Oh, people get away with a lot if you you can get away with a lot of bad theology, particularly in these times if you don't say Jesus. You can get away with a lot of bad stuff. Um, and so this is why I sometimes get on everyone's nerves a little bit because when I talk about religious trauma, it's like, yes, let's talk about the church. Let's also talk about the person selling crystals that you keep giving your money to or the tarot cards that you're flipping and not learning how to make your own decisions um, because you're afraid of making decisions. Like it's, 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 it's room to share <laughs> all of it. But I think it's important to still go back to the fact that we are a traumatized colonized, kidnapped people. <laughs> and when you're in a situation, you make do with what you have. And so I use, I don't know what I used the example last time, but I, I'll use it again. Imagine a black dude who works at Walmart and he's super poor and he has to travel on the bus to work and he gets gout or something bad in his foot and he, and he has awful insurance. So see, he, has, he has to pick between missing work, which might get him fired or paying money that he doesn't have to go to a clinic 
to also get medication that he can barely pay for. And he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. So then he's watching TV and then some televangelist comes on and says, if you send me $5, I will send you this magic, you know, holy water or whatever. Well, hell, you gonna send in $5, aren't you? Because you don't really have any other options. People have bad options um, and they pick from their bad options. And again, that's not to excuse anyone. I think it's important to highlight that a lot of people never had to never had the opportunity or chance to think about life outside of the way it was presented to them. And because of that, they perpetuate trauma and harmful things and ideas because they never had a time to stop. Does that mean that it excuses them? Of course not. But it means that most people aren't like me. I went to school forever, too much, frankly, and learned and thought and write and was around all these books. Everybody doesn't, most people don't get all that. And so we have to figure out a different way to get people to rethink some of the things that they're dealing with. And also change is scary. Um, what do you mean a therapist? I gotta talk to somebody about my stuff? What do you mean about like that? that that's scary. And so I think that to recognize, for me, if you recognize what people use religion for, then you can begin to address the harmful ways that they use it and begin to give them um, healthier ways to practice those things if they still want to. All fair, salient points. So I think we can kind of punctuate the conversation by saying there's, there's work to be done there are revelations to be had there are things to unlearn and there is of course trauma to combat i guess but personally my biggest takeaway from this conversation is it's really something that i've been kind of thinking about in general with all of the things that are going around me and people having children and everything is that it's so important to break the cycle of unhealthy behaviors. Um, and I don't know if we can really break the cycle of trauma because a lot of it is put on us from outside sources. But I think, I don't want to say as a community, cause that might be a little bit too broad, just in general though. I think that there's a lot that we can do to maybe unpack the trauma and maybe through unpacking it, we can learn to cope with it a little better. Because I don't really know if there's a a solution. I mean, you know, the human experience is so complex. Like, it's, it's hard to be able to say, well, if we do this thing, then this thing will happen. Like, I don't know what we could say or what we could do to say, okay, we're going to get rid of this trauma. We're leaving the trauma in 2019 ladies. We're not taking it with us. Shout out to that meme of that lady with yeah. that bag over her shoulder. Okay. She's, she's, her time. she's about to come back. Listen, she's, she's <laughs> leaving Chick-fil-A and religious trauma in 2019. And I get that, but I don't think that there's like a, a cure all for this, but there's not, it doesn't, trauma doesn't work that way. Right. Um, it's what I've learned with trauma in my own life is that you, particularly given what it is, you don't go back to normal. You have to figure out a way forward and you have to kind of heal forward. A new I, normal. I think what will happen 
is as folks who are more around our ages begin to do things differently, it will cause a shift because a lot of people, like there's a lot of community dynamics and I'm a fan of, listen, the boat is open for anyone who wants to come on, but there are a lot of people who do not want to hop on. And (laughs) I'm not going to drag you on the boat because that could be somebody else's spot. And so a lot of people simply do not want to get on the boat. We still have a lot of black outlets that know how to get away with a lot of harmful things while still using progressive language. Mm. Um, And what will have to happen is that a lot of those things will just have to, with time, go away. Um, I think that what needs to happen is in, in your own, our own individual lives. And it's challenging because for us to heal from religious trauma means that we have to put up boundaries and well, shit, we can't even lock our own doors in our bedrooms. And so mm-hmm. how are we going to have boundaries? Right. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know I mean? That's my door. I'm taking it off the hand. You can't, you know, that like, we don't, we, it, it goes against certain cultural ideas that we have around what a child is what relationships are, how authority works, how relationships work. And that's tough because it might mean looking Nana in her face and say, Nana, that you're, you're wrong. Uh, but what I tell folks is that, you know, the way that we told all the white folks to go to Thanksgiving and talk to their white folks, mm-hmm. this is the racist. We have to be willing to do the same thing um, for ourselves and for other people. And so if you're going to go hard on Sally, tell her to talk to her racist uncle. But if you're a deacon, father or cousin starts talking about gays or trans folk or so or or immigrant stealing stuff that you need to have some of that same juice for them um in, in in a similar way in order to move things forward and i think that as that happens as as the window for what's acceptable to discuss and what's normalized in society moves over we'll see some changes i think because of the function of the black church it will not completely disappear, but it's weakening. Um, it, does, it is not the central force of whatever you would call the movement today. Mm-hmm. And I think Aretha Franklin's funeral um, highlights exactly why that is, um, because of the response and the, just the overall cluelessness of why people would respond to them that way, um, given that, you know, the, how, what they were doing and what they were saying I don't, it'll still be around, but I think we'll have to at some point say, look, we want something different and put up the boundaries and move it that way. And I think that'll happen. It might not happen. It might happen toward the end of my time here, <laughs> but I think eventually we'll see something. Yeah, I agree. Shout out to you for bringing it back to uh, Miss Franklin. Um, I wanted to say, you know, obviously it's not, I mean, um we talked a little bit about churches that are doing a good job seemingly you know because you know you know you don't always know what's going on but churches that do seemingly do a good job of embracing the lgbt community and even though organized religion and christianity was not for me ultimately i can still highlight that the church that i used to go to in houston from what I saw, did a very, very good job. Like their outreach and embracing the people in the community, you know, not just using them for 
whatever gifts they have while simultaneously not really accepting them. Like you could see genuine um, admiration and love in the church staff for these people, whether they were part of the staff as well or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just wanted to say that I've seen it with my own eyes. I know it exists, but that doesn't mean that there's still not a lot that can be done for the black experience when it comes to religion. I don't want to say the black church because, you know, I realize, you know, not every black person goes to a quote unquote black church. You know what I mean? So it's like, but that doesn't mean that you won't still have your issues with religion some way or another. There's homophobia in the mosque. There's homophobia in the synagogue. Um, It's not a, it's Christianity definitely does it quite well, but they, it doesn't have a monopoly. <laughs> they don't have a monopoly on listen. Yeah, um, <laughs> bigotry fall. Indeed. Yeah, bigotry is Indeed. everywhere. And I mean, just black, I mean, we're talking particularly about this topic. Black people typically as a community, even though it's starting to change, but still typically rigid gender norms. I mean, look at any comment section and you can still see blatantly, you know, like the comment, I, I think a lot of people think that life is like Twitter. No, life is like the comment section. Yeah. Um, and so that's really what's still out there. It's great that we have these intense progressive pockets, but that's not typical life for many people. It's much more like the comment section in the shade room or the comment section at the breakfast club. It's much more like that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, Hopefully this conversation is a good starter. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I always enjoy um, talking to Verdell. So I want to say thank you again for bringing this to the show, agreeing to be on the show again, and all of those good things. You are definitely a friend of the show. I was trying to think of a word better than friend, but man, I mean. I'll take it. <laughs> you know, let me <laughs> let me stay in my lane and within my range because I'm like, what's higher than friend? And then the Golden Girls song started playing in my head. So we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna that's do that. Love I love theme songs. I'll take that. And that's one of the best. Um, so again, thank you for coming on the show. And if there's anywhere you want people to find you or anything you want to plug, now is the time. Well, I don't have anything. Um, I'm working on things. I mean, that's um, okay too. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can go to, uh, I'm on there, uh, V.W, so the, the letter V, D-O-T, the letter W. Um, you can follow me there when I write something eventually in the next week or two, you can find it there. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, that, that's really it. I've, I've been kind of like away from the religious writing scene, but I'm going to come back in a different way. So Come through. He coming back with the jump off. Yep, that's the plan. All right, you guys, that's going to wrap this show up. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you again for listening. Remember, you can chime in at any time. If you have thoughts on what you've heard, go ahead and sound off. Use the hashtag GaySidePod when you're live tweeting or posting about the show so that everyone can see that. You can also send in letters, compliments, show topic ideas, stories, or whatever you may wish. I like to call it the gay side mail, all of which can be sent to gay side stories at gmail.com. Please go ahead and do that. 
Also, go over to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, and if you really love the show and want to show some support, leave a review, five stars as well, and make sure you're sharing this show with other people. Word of mouth is still the best way for podcasts like this one to reach more ears and get a bigger audience. So go ahead and tell someone that you love the podcast, friend, coworker, family, whatever the case may be. That is how we get more people to listen to these shows. And you know what? That's it. Love yourselves as always. Make sure you're protecting your walls or they will what crumble. And I will be back next week.